Good morning. For those who don't know, uh, or as Aaron said, my name is Tommy Langjans. I am going into my third and final year at Western Theological Seminary this coming fall and am uh, seeking ordination um, into pastoral ministry in the PCUSA. So as you can imagine, I love any chance that I can get to, uh, to preach. So um, just really thankful to Caitlin and to Chuck for helping connect me this morning and um, also super thankful to Aaron for helping prepare me for everything that I'd need this morning. So with that, let's pray together. Loving God, may your word be our ruler, your spirit, our teacher, and the glory of Christ, our single concern. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wipe his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned off, turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, 
if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored, and he became clean. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There was a group of high school students getting ready for the first performance of their spring musical. The high school was in an area with a very high Christian population, so over time, a tradition began to form. Before every show, they would pray and sing a worship song together before going on stage. You didn't need to participate, of course, but if you wanted to, it was there. One year, the students began circling up to pray, and one of the lead actors left the room right before the prayer started. And it was weird. This student was known for being very public about their faith and had a lot of friends at the school, especially the kind of friends that would be in that prayer circle. So after the prayer, someone went outside to check on this student and make sure everything was okay. And the student who left said something like this. I get so frustrated when I walk into that room and see people who have prayed maybe three or four times a year in this room, and that's the only way they know God. So I left because I don't want to support that. We might not know exactly why the student said what he did, but it's true that having a relationship with God is the best kind of relationship you can possibly have. And sometimes when you have something so good, it can be so easy to look down on people who don't have what you have. This is true in faith and in so many other places as well. It could be a new fancy job or having money or being popular at school or at any number of things. When we have the power of a leading role or a fancy job, sometimes that power can affect how we look at the world. Power can affect us positively, but other times it can affect us like it might have affected the student. We might become so focused on our power that we begin to separate ourselves from people who don't have that power. And that's sad, because as a result, we might be missing something good that God is doing in just the other room. So with that in mind, how can we avoid missing out? In our scripture passage for this morning, a key theme of the story is power. Who has it and who doesn't? In terms of worldly power, and I'm going to give you a scale here on the side, it's improvised. We're just going to have to work with it this morning. 
Um, in terms of worldly power, the king of Aram sits at the very top of the scale, and right underneath him is the king of Israel. This is because, according to hints in the story, Israel had lost a military in a military conflict with Aram. So when Aram sends a letter saying Israel, to Israel, hey, do this, Israel had better do it, or else Aram might send their military back. Right below both of these kings is Naaman, who's the commander of Aram's army. In Hebrew, Naaman is referred to as an ish gadol, a great man or a big man. The word gadol indicates not only size or physical strength, but the size of one's power or influence. To say that Naaman is gadol is to say that he's likely wealthy, likely in high social standing, and also because he's a war general, probably pretty strong and big as well. Naaman's leprosy, a pale, scratchy skin disease, would have made Naaman a bit of an outcast in society. Nobody could touch him because he was considered unclean. And even then, he's still a very powerful man. Next down is Elisha. Elisha is a faithful prophet who God uses to bring healing, food, and even resurrection from death to his surrounding community. He likely was known pretty well in his community, but we see a little bit after where I ended the reading that Elisha refuses to accept the gift that Naaman offers him. So it indicates that he probably didn't accept a lot of money for the work that he was doing. So significantly less power. We don't know much about the unnamed servant who tells Naaman to wash in the Jordan, but we can guess that he would be well below Naaman, probably somewhere with Elisha. And then at the very bottom of the list would be the young slave girl. Naaman is said to be an honorable military leader, and yet he steals an innocent young girl away from her family and forces her to work for his wife. Regardless of how commonplace it might have been for a nation to take slaves from other nations, her situation just isn't fair. So that's interesting and all, but why does it matter? Well, Jeremiah, the author of this story, seems to treat the people at the top of the power scale, the ones with the most power, the least favorably, at least at the start. Naaman tells the king of Aram what the young slave girl has told him, that there's a prophet in Israel who can heal him. The king of Aram sends a letter not to the prophet, but to the king of Israel, likely because he didn't know Israel's God. The king of Israel receives this letter, learns that the man standing in front of him is an army general from Aram, and also that he's asked to receive and give this man an impossible healing. Understandably, he is terrified. And in his terror, we see that even the king of Israel doesn't know God all that well because he, does, he shows no faith that God or anyone else could accomplish the miracle set before him. Both of these kings are clueless when it comes to God. And then finally, we have the main power figure in our story, Naaman, 
who pouts like a child when he learns what he has to do to be healed. Naaman brings about $80,000 worth of silver, gold, and clothing with him to Israel, hoping that Elisha will take him to the center of the square, wave his hands, and cure him in some miraculous way for all to see. And what happens when he gets there? Elisha doesn't even meet him at the door. Elisha sends a messenger to tell Naaman how to be healed. And the way to be healed is to wash in the murky, muddy rivers of the Jordan. Naaman walks away fuming. Not only did Elisha disrespect him when he arrived, but he asked him to wash in a river that is not nearly as nice as the rivers of his homeland. The amount of context you need to understand what's going on in this story is huge. And it makes it very difficult to relate to on a first read. But after looking at the correlation between power of being gadol and being close to God, the two things almost feel like opposites in this story. It would be a stretch to say that everyone who has power or influence is also far from God. We see God work through people of all social classes, kings, the poor, sinners, priests, warriors, tax collectors, fishermen, and everyone in between. And yet, Naaman's pride in his power makes him so offended and frustrated that he almost misses out on being healed. Friends, we might not have the power of biblical kings or army generals, Many of us likely have power or influence somewhere in our lives. There are a lot of different kinds of power that one can have, from political power and wealth to maybe serving as an elder or deacon on a church leadership team to simply having a friend who trusts what you say. And there are a lot of ways that we can accidentally become obsessed with that power. When we begin to center our sense of self-worth on the power that we have or the things that we've achieved, maybe, then, like Naaman, we might become so obsessed with what we deserve from the world that we'll miss out on what we need from God. Our pride might prevent us from healing. So how can we avoid letting our pride get in the way of God's work in us and around us? There's a myriad of ways to approach this question in Scripture, and Naaman's story suggests a unique answer to that question. First, let's look back at where Naaman's journey first began. Naaman doesn't learn where to get the skincare routine he so desperately needs from the kings or from any government officials. The whole journey starts with a young slave girl. One kind suggestion sets Naaman's journey to God in motion. And then, After Naaman learns what he'll need to do and starts pouting, it's the unnamed servant 
who puts things into perspective for him. The soldier reminds Naaman how badly he wants to be healed and how easy it is to just wash in a river. Naaman listens. He goes down into the water, probably with a fair deal of skepticism, and his leprosy is washed away. We often expect the powerful or skilled people at the top in the story to influence the events of the story the most. But in this story, Naaman's healing happens because of the people with the least power. The young girl shows Naaman that he can be healed. Elisha shows him how to do it. And the unnamed soldier gives him the final push into the water. So maybe if we start listening to the people we would normally ignore or look down upon, we'll find that God has given them power and wisdom that we don't have. God works through all types of people, so maybe if we seek out people with less power and listen to what they have to say, God can take the scratchiness of pride and frustration and wash it away. No story captures this dynamic quite like the movie The Emperor's New Groove. In the movie, Cusco, the egotistical emperor of Machu Picchu, plans to build a summer home called Cusco-topia on the land of a humble farmer named Pacha. Cusco is so obsessed with himself that he fails to listen to the citizens of his empire, and we see him brush away their concerns in favor of his own. Then, his former advisor, Yizma, turns him into a llama and steals the throne away from him. Cusco is forced to ask Pacha to help him reclaim the throne, and Pacha, hoping to save his home, agrees to help. The journey is not easy. Cusco continues to look down on Pacha, and Pacha leaves Cusco to fend for himself a few times after Cusco says some very unkind things to him. It takes a while, but Cusco eventually begins to listen to Pacha and starts to care about him and his family. After Cusco and Pacha overthrow Yizma and Cusco turns back into a human, Cusco decides to let Pacha keep his land and builds his summer home on a hill right next door to his new friend. I'm fairly certain God's not going to turn us into llamas. But conversations with people who are different from us are not always going to be easy. Sometimes learning to listen well to someone else takes time. And sometimes we might say something that makes the other person want to leave, or vice versa. But if we can find the patience to stick with it, to apologize when we mess up, and can be willing to learn from others, God can speak to us in ways that we would have missed otherwise. Through that speaking, God can transform us into people who know how to love our neighbors well, regardless of who they might be.
Naaman shows us just how radical this transformation can be. Naaman originally expected Elisha to show him respect by coming and standing before him. But after Naaman is healed, he comes and stands before Elisha, showing him the honor and respect. Naaman offers everything he's brought to Elisha and insists that he take it. And shortly after, Naaman asks a few questions about how he might be faithful to God when he returns to Aram. The story doesn't say what happens when Naaman returns home, but I love one enactment of the story where Naaman bows before the young servant girl and thanks her, giving her the acknowledgement she deserves for her kindness. Naaman originally wanted to receive healing in a way that glorified himself. And now, Naaman is focused on giving these gifts to Elisha and to glorifying God. Naaman is not only healed physically from his leprosy, he's healed spiritually and looks at the world in a completely new way. So friends, as we go from this place today, may we remember Paul's words in Galatians 3.28. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Pride tells us that we're not one, that some people are better than others. Christ tells us that no matter who you are, no matter how much power you've been given, you are loved. You are loved immensely by the God who created you. So may we go out and treat others as though we are one with them, especially those with less power than us. Like Naaman, may we listen to the guidance of the powerless so that we might come to experience God's love in unpredictable ways. And in doing so, may we be gadol in how we share that love with others. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.